Italy is a country with the world's highest number of World Heritage Sites, yet often finishes low on the list of best places for doing business. Historically, Italy has sent millions abroad throughout Europe and the Americas, forming one of the world's largest diaspora networks, yet today has one of the highest net immigrations in Europe from places like Asia and the Middle East. Centered at the crossroads of the Occident and the Orient, the saying, all roads lead to Rome, has presented both promise in the case of the Silk Road and the subsequent wealth generated during the Renaissance, and the perils posed by transmission of disease with the Black Plague and now the coronavirus first entering Europe through Italy. Tonight, Eduardo from the Italian Metapolitics TV joins us to help us better understand this country rich in both history and complexity. I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time stealing. Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Uh, today we are joined by a very special guest from Italy, uh, Eduardo. Uh, and I'm also joined uh, by a, a guest co-host, uh, Fulwer from Rebel Yell. Uh, thank you both. Uh, Eduardo, uh, as our guest, how are you? Como está? Fine, thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm very glad to be with you today. I, I have to say that I like your show. I listen regularly. So I'm really glad to be today with you guys. Well, it's an honor to have you. Uh, and Fulwer, thank you also for joining. Uh, the reason we, um, we just have us three today is because uh, Italy is whether we know it or not, it's, it's very far away from the United States. And so the time zone is very different. And so this was the only time we could all find time to talk. So I'm very happy we could do that. Um, and grateful that the internet allows us to do this, of course. Uh, so I think the, the synthesis of how we started the conversation was uh, Eduardo has a YouTube uh, and Twitter account focused on politics and metapolitics uh, in Italy. Uh, it is actually called um, Metapolitics, uh, youtube.com forward slash Metapolitics, and it is a Metapolitics TV at Twitter. Right. Uh, and you have an interest, obviously, in some of the, the difficulties happening in Italy and Europe, I think, around migration mostly, uh, and identity of what Europeans are. And then we have a similar interest at uh, Rebel Yell and Myth of the 20th Century about the United States and the West, or the Occident, as we might call it. Uh, and it really comes from much of the, uh, the Roman tradition, if you think about it. The West is kind of a concept of uh, a very long-standing idea of the East and the West, and it came from the ancient world, I think. Uh, but uh, bringing us together, I think, is important because... Uh, even though we, many of us in many countries speak English, um, the 
Italy is is uh, somewhat different than perhaps obviously uh, the United Kingdom, where we both speak the same language, uh, but also the Northern European countries, which have a, a Protestant religious uh, tradition, and then the Southern European countries, uh, Italy, Spain, uh, in particular, a little bit of France, which is in between, uh, have more of a Catholic tradition, and the languages are also very different. And so the communication is often less with uh, the Southern European part. So I'm very happy we could actually talk to someone from Italy uh, to ask questions. And I'm also very curious, Eduardo, uh, how uh, Italians and you in particular uh, feel about the United States uh, and what's happening uh, with maybe our president uh, and what's happening oh, yeah. in uh, Italy with uh, Salvini, who is also very interesting to us. Uh, so I thought it'd be a good conversation starter to talk about some of just the recent events. And then I would like to go to the history to give people more deep understanding. But yeah, uh, what, what, what is happening now? Uh, and how do you see the two? Oh, places? Well, what is happening right now is that we have a problem with this so-called uh, coronavirus, you know, and uh, yeah. basically, uh, I don't know if you heard, but uh, there are a lot of cases. So uh, we have a problem now. Now, our government is really busy with this uh, issue. And uh, people are uh, really crazy because they are told to be at home, not to go out, especially around uh, Milano, you know, northern Italy. Uh, so, well, the situation is a bit like that. Uh, TV, radio, newspapers, they talk only about that. Can I ask uh, you? Every day. Is yeah. the reason it's happening in Milano because of the garment workers from China? I know a lot of the made in Italy uh, shoes and clothes yes. are actually manufactured by Chinese people working in Italian factories. Is yes, that part that's of it? right. It might be part of it. There are a lot of Chinese people in Milano, not only in Milano. It's uh, the um, the biggest uh, Chinese, Chinese district is uh, um, not far from uh, Firenze. So um, in Italy in general, there, there are a lot. So probably they came from China. We did not uh, check them properly, and that's why we have this this situation. So th there is a, this this thing. Um, that's not doesn't mean that Chinese people are uh, seen bad in Italy, but uh, because of this uh, virus, we have uh, now in Italy uh, th this problem. It's know? it's very scary because if you know the the history of the Black Plague in Europe 700 years ago uh, or 900 years ago. I'm trying to remember exactly, but a long time ago, the, the, the very horrible disease that killed about a third of the people. It, the, it, it came from China. The, the, the and, 13th yes. century. And it, and it started in Italy. <laughs> so it was in, yes. in Genoa. So hopefully this is not uh, the second second act. Well, where did the, the garment factory talking point come from? I saw that on a Twitter thread this morning. You know, I've never seen it, it, but I, I knew that from, from just reading probably 10 years was ago. A, I knew it, that was the Yeah, case. it was a, a, a Twitter thread this morning. It was like called like Minch's Mold Buggin or something like that. It was a strange Twitter account. Mm -hmm. But it was linking the possibility of you know, the coronavirus infections in, in Italy to the Chinese city. I think it was Meiju. Or was the name of the city, but apparently 
almost all of the Chinese, you know, Chinese Italians, whatever you want to call them, uh, that that live that live in Italy come from this one city hmm. in in China, and they it's you know it's basically a, a pipeline where they you know they get set up producing usually garments or something like that, and then they and then they you know start lobbying to have. Uh, you know their their cousins, and you know we're you know they bring labor in, but it's it all seems to be from this one Chinese city, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, you know you you have to to know that in Italy basically we have um, a huge amount of things coming from China. I mean, you, whatever you buy, it's made in China. <laughs> you know, it's like our economy is I, I wouldn't say totally, but really um, a lot of um, stuff you buy uh, come from China, and uh, that's why they are made in China or made by Chinese people in Italy. So we have this kind of uh, economy now. Um, we would say a kind of colonization by by Chinese, um, and probably that's why our government uh, uh, is trying to establish relations with uh, with the Chinese uh, government, also because. It's a matter of fact that we have economic relations. Is this something that the business elite, uh, I don't know if uh, Confindustria is representative of large mm -hmm. businesses or small businesses, but my understanding is if it is like in the United States or America, the big businesses tell the government what they want, and specifically they tell the elected officials, I will pay for your campaign. And if you do what you what I want, when you are in office, uh, that's how it works here. And then typically, the businesses will tell them, we want low costs and lots of customers. And I would imagine it's similar in Italy. Uh, but you know, the, the unemployment problem in southern Europe, I mean, Greece is the worst, uh, Italy is not very good. Uh, and Spain is also not very good. I don't know if that is because there is the 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 regular normal people they don't want to work, or the big business would rather just hire Chinese labor. I, I don't know what's happening, but I, I I've often wondered why in the past Italy in particular had a very good uh, economic uh, period after the Second World War where Italians were working very hard uh, and they were still having children and the economy was doing very well. Uh, and now there's all these problems and I'm going very quickly and I would like to go into more detail later, but uh, just simple question. Who wants yeah. the Chinese workers in Italy? I, I would say not only Chinese workers because we have uh, immigrants also from um, Africa, for instance, Nigeria. Uh, we have uh, the biggest uh, Romanian community in Europe, in Italy, uh, people from Albania also. Yeah. So there are a lot of them. Uh, these people, not all, but most of these people accept to work for less. And now Italians have to do the same because if they want to live here, uh, they have to accept that. So now I can say, right, you're right when you say that the Italy was a richer country before. It was much better before. And not long before, I would say, uh, before we joined the, the Eurozone, yes. the Euro currency, the Italian economy was much better. Uh, 
Uh, I would uh, place, maybe we'll talk better uh, about that later, but I would pl- uh, set the, the change, the shift from the fall of the Soviet Union. Yes. So from the yes. fall of the Soviet Union, our economy started to decline. And that's what we have now. I think that makes sense. And let's let's talk about what happened. But before we do that, I wanted yeah. to introduce to our audience in particular uh, how Italy as a country is really kind of a new concept. Um, the United States is also a young country, but it is actually older than Italy, which might surprise some people, uh, even though the Italian people and the people from uh, the, the peninsula of Italy have been there for a long time. The country is only about 150 years or so. And that is uh, similar to the French. There was many revolutions in Europe at that time. Uh, but many people point to external factors as helping Italy become even a country. Uh, it was it was many, many different kingdoms, uh, the kingdom of Sicily, the city-states of uh, the northern parts. Um, You had uh, Firenze and Milano and all these big cities that were really run by very powerful uh, merchant people, business people uh, that had their own political system and and soldiers. And it came together under uh, Garibaldi. uh, And he was helped by the British, from what I understand, because the British wanted another power to balance the French and the Austrians. So maybe you can correct me, Eduardo, but the the idea of Italy and this book that I was suggesting we read, uh, The Failure of Italian Nationhood, I think is very good because it explains how complicated things are today and how the attempt to create one country was a very difficult task and it's making the politics and solving some of these problems difficult today. Uh, so can you talk about the background and in your perspective, yeah. like w- what is uh, the history of, of the country today of Italy? Well, you know, this is interesting because um, not only people from United States, for instance, do not know our history, but even uh, Italians don't know. Because I remember when I was at school um, on our books, uh, there was this kind, nice, fancy uh, story about Garibaldi. Uh, going uh, to southern Italy with uh, thousands of people, soldiers, and uh, mm, uh, taking this uh, this part of Italy to uni- unify with the north. But that's not really the truth. I mean, this is the propaganda they want to, to teach us. But uh, uh, the reality is, as you said, this was a plan. It was a plan financed by uh, British, uh, not only, and... Uh, I can tell you more that the southern uh, people, they did not really want uh, Italy. They were quite fine, even if, of course, there were problems there, there was poverty. Uh, but these people were, I would say, fine with the, with the, um, the, the kingdom they had there and uh, probably even under the the pope because you know in the in the center of italy there was yes. this uh, church state they were fine so it was necessary to build a kind of um, idea of uh, Italy, which is not uh, um, very uh, new because the idea of Italy uh, existed before 
We can trace it uh, even in Dante, for instance. So the idea of Italy that that it was, uh, that uh, it's a country, it's a culture, we have a culture, we have a language, uh, but uh, uh, it wasn't necessary to build a nation. Uh, After that, someone said, okay, we uh, made Italy, now we have to make Italians, because... (laughs) Because uh, because uh, Italians were, did not exist after all, uh, and that, that's that's a problem we still have. If Italy now is not a real, uh, very nationalist country, it's also because of that, because of this long um, tradition of city states, of kingdoms, and, and so on. Uh, yeah, basically, what happened in uh, 1861 was the unification of of all those uh, kingdoms. Uh, not, and it was not very easy. Um, there is a l- larger literature about that, what ha- really happened in the Sicily, in the southern Italy, when uh, the uh, army of the northern, of the Savoia, came to, uh, to, to, to take this part of Italy. Yes. So, yeah. I was very surprised in this book to read and please correct me, but 95, almost 100%, but 95% of the Italian population did not speak the official language, which I would assume is Italian, but there's differences in obviously Sicilian and some of the other dialects, but was that a big problem? And is that still a problem today where people don't communicate the same? You know, uh, in Italy, there is this very uh, interesting thing that uh, when you are with friends or with your family, um, you can basically speak uh, a, di- a dialect. It's a, it's a form of communication more straight and more uh, understandable. Yeah. For instance, with, with my grandparents, I use that. Because my grandparents, even though they, they speak Italian, of course, but mm-hmm. Italian is perceived as an of official language. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, you know, when you are in office, when you are, uh, for instance, uh, um, you know, actors, um, hmm. th- these people. But even on television, you hear people with their accent. So it's a kind of... Uh, um, peculiar uh, characteristic in, in Italy. Back then, it, it was even more. Because back then, people really did not understand each other. It made, yeah. Is there a, a status attached to different dialects? In the United States, for example, there is, and Fulwer can speak to this, but there is a stereotype about Southerners because they have a different accent. I was going to say, I have the, the retard dialect. That's, that's but I like that dialect. I think it's actually, <laughs> it's a nice, it's very, it's charming. It's very masculine. Yeah. I love it. But I have kind of the, I don't know, Hollywood, California bullshit uh, accent. I don't really have an accent because it's what most Americans have, I think. But there used to be more in America. There used to be a North, mm-hmm. a New England accent. There, used to, there still is a Boston accent. There even was a New York accent that's still there. Um, there is something in the North, in the Midwest. Mike uh, yeah, Bloomberg. But I was I was watching the debate the other night, and I thought to myself, I was like, Mike Bloomberg. He sounds non-rhotic. I was like, I was, it's, you have you have to go, you have to go, you know. 
is probably one of the last examples of like a real New York dialect. Yeah. You, you have all of these in, in, in several countries. I think it's interesting because I'd never paid attention to this in Italy before that they still exist in Italy. Because a number of countries were, in, I mean, America is a country that's been pretty good at exterminating, you know, its regional dialects. But none of them have been as good, I think, as Germany, which is, Germany comes into existence about the same time Italy does. And, you know, people on one end of Germany couldn't understand people on the other end of Germany. But they've almost succeeded entirely in extirpating the regional dialects there. And it's all been sort of like brought under the, the Hochstoich you know, sort of language now. Yeah. There's, but the, I, I, hadn't, I hadn't ever considered that maybe, I guess maybe it's because Italian bureaucracy is a little less, you know, mind-bogglingly efficient, that, the, the, that it, <laughs> it's more of, a, more of a problem there. You know, I, I don't know if you are familiar with the, 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 this uh, movie, uh, really famous uh, Gomorra, which yes. is uh, yes. basic. Oh, yeah. So uh, this is about um, mafia in, in Italy, in Napoli and so on. And uh, so this movie uh, in Italy was with so subtitles. <laughs> Why? Because it's spoken in, in dialect and uh, we do not understand it. I mean, if I watch it without that, I would not understand what they are talking about. Mm -hmm. So you understand that, that uh, we have to also specify that one thing is a dialect, another thing is an accent. You might have accent from a certain uh, oh. region, area, and that's okay, quite fine. But th then there is a dialect. Of course, new generation, new generations uh, know uh, a dialect less than the previous one, but uh, still exists. And uh, I just, before we move to more recent history, I did want to discuss the transition from different kingdoms and city-states to a unified country, uh, because mm -hmm. as, as I mentioned at the opening, uh, Fuller's group is, is really a Southern group. And is there, is there still a sense of a divide in Italy? Uh, and as have people come together or is there more of a divide today? Uh, there was, uh, I think Salvini comes from, uh, from Lega Nord, which is from the north. But I could be mistaken about where he's from. But I do know that there is a northern separatist group and then the south does not like the north and then Rome is in the middle. So can you talk about how the different regions have come together or maybe come apart, Eduardo? Well, uh, you know, the, the one uh, uh, characteristic of Italy is this uh, so-called city-state. And this is our also um, beauty, because if you come to Italy, you see every single city has something specific, yes. different architecture, different traditions. This is exactly because of that, because each of these cities had a state. So basically, you know, like Firenze was a state, uh, Bologna, which is not far from, from Firenze, is, was a state. So uh, these were like, they had the, their uh, small kingdoms there and uh, with their traditions. When, what happened then that uh, basically when the, the rulers from the Savoia rulers uh, took Italy, they just uh, applied their bureaucracy uh, from, from, the, from the top. And so Italy started to function as a bureaucratic state uh, with with it. Um, the, the history is that not this took a long time uh, to be completed. And as I said before, uh, Italians are uh, uh, still in progress because we do not have really 
uh, a long uh, and uh, established tradition of nationalism, uh, in spite of the fact that we had the fascism. But yes. uh, even even that, um, even Mussolini could not really make Italians as a as a homogeneous group of people. Um, so. This divide still exists, and I would say more that uh, now, even the southern Italy, there are organizations, uh, uh, movements, uh, um, which uh, really um, has a goal, have a goal to um, to um, rediscover again the history of the southern kingdom, traditions, history, uh, culture, languages, and so on. Wow. So this is something uh, I would say positive because for uh, for a long time it was impossible to talk about that. Yeah. There was this rhetoric of uh, of uh, unity and uh, you could not question that. That was the, the, the main line and the, of history and that's it. Yeah, and I have, uh, I have just one small note on the Mussolini... Uh, period. And I just want to remind our listeners that Mussolini was fascist before every other country was fascist uh, after the Depression. Uh, it was, I think, in the 1920s, a good 10 years before Germany uh, elected uh, Hitler to office in 1933. Uh, Mussolini was, was trying to do what uh, Hitler did to a degree, and they're obviously very different. Uh, but one of Mussolini's goals was, as you say, to unite the Italian people. And one of yeah. the one of the tools he tried to use was creating uh, the myth of the fatherland. And this should sound familiar to most people who think about nationalism. But I think if you look at the architecture of the Mussolini government, it was calling back to the the classical Roman era where there was. I mean, the, the term fascism comes from the fasces, where you have these these sticks together. Uh, separately they're weak but together they're very strong so he's trying to unite people and he would put those in in the columns of the the big buildings from rome and and look you know this is how everything worked and i don't know if it if it succeeded but the the government was spending uh it, it increased from 16 percent to actually 33 percent of the total economic output and it was, it was a very interesting <laughs> attempt to use the, the, the lower classes to actually bring up the nation. I think it was it, it, fascism in Italy, perhaps differently than in Germany, was somewhat viewed skeptically by the middle class or the bourgeois, uh, as we would say. And it was really for the lower classes, the, the agricultural people, to have... An opportunity to become part of something bigger, uh, whereas the people who had money were not really gaining as much, and so he tried to do these these kind of funny things like uh, the Pontine Marshes, where he would drain the swamp around around Rome, right. like like Donald Trump is trying to drain the swamp around Washington D.C. and it, uh, <laughs> I don't I don't think they either either of them really did anything um, positive, but. Uh, the, the idea was to, result. to build, to build, to build, and and so government increases spending. We're going to organize, you know, the military. We're going to have one language, and we're all going to become great again. So, yeah. can you talk about that that time period? Yeah. I mean, was there anything uh, good? Was was there some things bad? What were the good and bad things? 
uh, yeah, basically, you know, Mussolini understood one thing that if he wanted to build, uh, uh, if he wanted to make Italians as a, as a nation, as a nationalist uh, people, he had to use some powerful uh, narration. So he had to use some kind of uh, idea, um, very, very powerful. So uh, he did not take the city states. Uh, history as a base of that. He took the Roman Empire. So he was claiming that Italians in the 20s, in the 30s, they were just coming straight from the Roman people. That's obvi obviously not true. I mean, in, in, it's partly true, but yeah. not uh, totally because Italy had a history after that. But uh, he, Mussolini knew very well that this was a powerful um, a tool and that's why the architecture, the, uh, all this uh, rhetoric about the Roman Empire, uh, the, the building of an empire, uh, I mean, in, in uh, Africa, for instance, um, we Italians did not have luck with, uh, with wars, I have to say, because <laughs> all our wars ended really not, not really well for us. But uh, he uh, tried. He tried to build a new empire, which was uh, basically for him the new Roman Empire, Italian Roman Empire. In fact, uh, you mentioned Germany. Italy and Germany were different also because Germany was uh, a racial state basing, based on racial concept of, of right. people, of folk. But Italy was not like that. Only after, only in 1938, uh, we started to um, to uh, take this this uh, approach. But uh, before, uh, Italy was more like a nationalist um, um, country. So the, our our philosophy was not uh, based on on race. In fact, uh, there were Jews in uh, in the fascist party. Uh, there were Jews uh, um, in um, in administration. So uh, Mussolini was not against at the very beginning. Only after, when he had to deal with uh, with Hitler, then uh, we had to change uh, our approach. But right, that is the the narrative that I've usually learned is that Hitler is sort of you know Mussolini sort of makes a a deal with Hitler that he may have maybe later have maybe later came to regret. But yeah. one of these things, one of these sort of in includes uh, taking on more and more of the anti-Semitic tropes from uh, from the, from the Nazi state that weren't necessarily there in the beginning. Yeah, that's right. And you have to also consider that uh, uh, Jewish people were not so uh, were not a big group in Italy back then. I don't really have a, a clear data now. But if you compare to uh, the situation now of immigration, there were really, it was a really small group. Nevertheless, um, because of this um, agreement with, with Hitler, we uh, had to change, uh, Italy had to change the, the uh, direction of uh, policy, and so it started to this anti-Semitic uh, um, uh, trend. Yeah, Italy has, has had a very very complicated history in the world wars they've they've switched sides yeah i think in both they, wars and they, it was, i would uh, say they're the the only country that managed <laughs> to switch sides in world war one to the winning side and still lose the war uh, an, an, impre an impressive feat of, of italian history <laughs> yeah and in talking about the italian um history and war 
it's somewhat of a short uh, history, obviously, because of the age of the country. Uh, but this book points out that the officers and the generals uh, of Italian heritage have actually been very successful. Uh, I'm not familiar with the, the lesser known generals uh, who were hired as basically mercenary commanders uh, by some of the the kingdoms in Europe. Uh, the French would hire them a lot, I think. Uh, but Napoleon, obviously, was probably the biggest one that people may not know was actually uh, from an Italian family. Uh, yeah. And mm -hmm. th there is some, some interesting history there. But when it comes to organizing the Italian people, I think that is where the problem is. It's not so much the individual capability of the Italian, but working as a group, I think, has always been a challenge for Italians. And something I've always observed is that you know, very brilliant, you know, artists and thinkers and philosophers, yeah. maybe, you know, even engineers, yeah. you know, inventing things. There's, there's a good scientific history there as well. Uh, but working as a group like the Germans, perhaps, who maybe individually are a little bit more boring, but they, they don't argue as much. Uh, they, do, they do get more done, you know, in some ways when it takes a group. So I think that's an interesting contrast. There is a, there are really interesting stories about soldiers of World War One in in Italy. Uh, very often they had a problem when when because for these young people uh, going to war was the the very first and probably the last experience out of their town, and uh, never experienced before. Um, they uh, as I, we said before they did not understand each other because of the, the language. Um, so probably this was also a reason why the army was not so well organized, because there was no basically um, a feeling of uh, belonging to a, a country. Um, even though the rhetoric celebrated them as a heroes, we have monuments everywhere about them. But if we we see closely uh, that was not the case because really um, these people were often like simply simple people never went out from their town and uh, they suddenly went on the mountains. Uh, they didn't, didn't know what to do, uh, just standing there conditions, you know how. And so basically we understand why our army uh, was not so successful. Well, yeah. if the, if the 11th Battle of the Asanzo River Valley was my only experience outside of my hometown, I would probably go back and never leave again as well. But the, uh, if one of the things that I've always been curious about, because you say this, that you know that it, it, Italy is a very localized place. I'm curious, was the black shirt movement? Uh, was it largely composed of was it a was it a World War One veteran movement? Because I could sort of see how, it, it, you know, if. You know, if the army, if you know this experience of World War One is a lot of the only thing these the, these young men have in common with one another, uh, how it could how it could be a like a unifying force in the twenties and thirties and after the war. Yeah, uh, that's that's correct. In fact, these people just came back from the war. They didn't ha not have a job. Uh, they did not know what to do. The the state did not support them. So probably yes, they found uh, they found in the fascism uh, something to um, identify with. Uh, we have to say also that these people were not all right wing. If right wing or left wing means something, yeah. but uh, they uh, they were not all right wing. There were also black shirts uh, left wing. 
the so-called Arditi. They were a, a group of people who had uh, a more left uh, worldview, um, and they belonged, of course, then to, to the, the at the very beginning with the fascist movement. Was, they joined it. Was uh, yes. Mussolini a communist at one point? Mussolini was a socialist. Socialist. Uh, he was a socialist, but a kind of socialist who supported, for instance, the the, the World War, uh, the first one. He wanted Italy to join. He was a journalist at the very beginning, but uh, uh, probably never fully a communist. He was a socialist. Okay. He always had this idea. That's why you said before that uh, the fascist regime uh, somehow... Uh, could build this unity because he always had this specific attention for for the lower classes. Uh, yes. Probably because he belonged to the socialist movement uh, in the um, at the very at the beginning of the century. Yeah. One of our recent guests, uh, Matthew Raphael Johnson, uh, he's yeah. a he's a American, but he speaks Russian, and he's also a very very serious historian. He's he does a lot of research uh, from all periods and all all places. And he did a very good show on actually Mussolini's government. And he made it very clear that Mussolini was not necessarily the same as the Italian people at the time. And probably explains why when they they surrendered and uh, eventually uh, Hitler had to send in Otto Scorzani to, to rescue um, Mussolini after the war... They, they murdered uh, Mussolini and his mistress and mutilated his body because I think there was a very deep resentment building up over time with Mussolini and the people because even though he may have talked about doing everything for the people, my understanding from listening to uh, Dr. Johnson was that Mussolini was doing this really for him and it, it sounded a lot like a big uh, ego uh, operation where he was creating a himself an emperor, uh, an empire for himself as emperor, and he wanted to distinguish between him and the rest of the people because a lot of the decisions Mussolini made, especially in war in in the military department, were very foolish, uh, and uh, he gives specific examples which I do not remember at the moment, but I will put a link to the, the show. I, I'd recommend it to well, people, but I wanted to ask If about, I remember correctly, yeah. he enters World War II almost flippantly. Uh, I, I, the war, the, it, this might have been a quote of quote from quotation from Mussolini before the war, but I think at one, he said something to the effect of, all I need is a few thousand dead to have a seat at the peace table. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, no preparation, yes. not taking it seriously is how I would summarize it. Yeah. Uh, that it was, that it, you know, I, I like this topic and so I read a lot about that. I always uh, find really interesting to see how um, Germany had always come to help Italy, uh, whatever yeah. Italy Italian army was. And uh, Hitler was a huge admirer of Mussolini, a big friend of him. But uh, I don't know. Um, I think uh, German German um, um, officers and the German army had really big patience with us because um, 
when whatever we were and how we had the problem, then German um, army had to to come, um, and this was a, a problem for them too because uh, you yes. understand in the in the middle of the war they had to just come to us to save to rescue. Um, well, they so, they had to send one of their best generals, uh, Irvin yes. Rommel, to northern Africa yes. to save. Yes. This is always army. this has always fascinated me because on paper. I mean, okay, uh, Mussolini enters World War II flippantly, of course, but uh, on paper, they look like a real contender. Um, you know, there, there's no shortage of people in the Italian army. They have, I think, maybe, I think at the time, they have the third largest navy in the world. Of course, it's after America and, and the UK. But they, they also have, um, they also have a, an, an almost unmatched air force at the time. This is one of these things that people don't know. But going into World War II, Italy had a real crack air force. And it just doesn't seem to have translated at all to any sort of success on the battlefield. Yeah. I think it's organization and I think it's the lack of big industry that probably made it very difficult to fight the modern war that World War II was. Uh, you know, even World War One was fairly industrial in nature where you had to have a very strong supply chain. But I think World War II especially, it was, and I want to talk about this later, but the nature of Italian business and Italian industry I think is very distinct uh, and it's very craftsman-like and it's not so much, uh, it doesn't lend itself very well to large-scale operations is all I wanted to that's say. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. We can come back to this, but it's, it's, I, I agree with you, it's true. Um, most of Italian uh, economy is based on small or medium uh, business. Yes. Uh, that was uh, very positive before the euro. Yes. And uh, it's, still, it's still like that. Now it's a, we are undergoing a, cr a crisis, but um, if you exclude those four or five huge uh, groups, uh, all, all the rest are uh, small and uh, medium business, even sometimes micro business, I would say, because <laughs> when you have like, uh, like uh, working for you, like five, six people, that's, that's very small. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, whenever I was, whenever I was preparing to do this show, I was trying to, you know, sit, sit in there making a list of things that were made in Italy. And, uh, of course I, I ended up coming out with, of course, of course I'm from Louisiana, we have a huge leather industry where we send a lot of alligator leather to Italy. Oh. But I started thinking about, and of course, I was smoking. I was smoking an Italian-made pipe, whenever, and and, and <laughs> oh, God, I'm wearing an, Ita an Italian-made suit right now. But yeah. I started thinking, you know, the things that Italy makes, and I thought I started thinking they do not necessarily translate themselves very well over to large-scale production no. it's all like the the italian economy seems like whenever i think of italian exports i almost always think of things that you want are you know that that sort of bespoke uh yeah. you know uh, or you know small small firm uh stamp on them and that i mean that, that that's good in its own sense but it's not necessarily good for competing in like a, a massive global economy yeah that's where it's difficult <laughs> yeah. That, that's what happened when we started to compete with China, because uh, as long as you produce uh, for uh, in you know something and you um, take for instance the luxury uh, business, we are very well in that. But that's very small. That's that's not really you cannot count on that to build your economy. Um, and then when you have to compete with China, with those things coming from China, then you suddenly realize that, well, 
there is not really competition because they cost less, uh, they um, they are more available, and so that's that's the crisis. Yeah, it, Italians make very nice things, but they don't make a lot of them. Not and, a lot, yeah. Yeah, and so it's quality over quantity. But I think the 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 the, the magic is, I've always said this: quality times multiplied mm-hmm. by quantity because that equals your wealth and if you only make one one million dollar car versus another company that makes 100 100,000 dollar cars you're not going to make as much money but you will maybe have a strong brand and a strong reputation and i think in certain circumstances it is better but i think maybe we can start transitioning the conversation to after the war, which was obviously a very yeah. difficult period, uh, to, I think, um, also a, a sort of transition period. There was, uh, I'm not very familiar with it, but it was known in the United States as the years of lead, where there were a lot of uh, assassinations and there was yes. a lot of uh, involvement with the kind of intelligence agencies like the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, fighting with the KGB with countries like Italy trying to grab control uh, from each other. Same thing was happening in Germany, obviously, and many other places. But that was a difficult period. But I think once that was settled, there was a very good time in the 1950s and 60s, which I would like to discuss that I think could be an interesting lesson for anyone who thinks about nationalism as a way to run a country because Italy uh, being very, very damaged during the war, uh, many people forget that it was uh, one of the first places the Allies started attacking. Uh, They started bombing uh, the Italian peninsula uh, before they were actually sending soldiers uh, into into Germany. Uh, there were soldiers in, in Sicily uh, coming from North Africa, from the United States and uh, the United Kingdom in particular. And there was uh, there was very quickly a, a surrender. Uh, but in the time between that, we have a very famous book uh, called Catch-22. And it's actually set in the bombing um, uh, officers' quarters of the United States Air Force at the time it was the U.S. Army's Air Corps, technically, but they were they were bombing Italy. Uh, but after that, and after the political difficulties, there was a they called it uh, well in 1987 they called it Il Sorpasso, where the economy actually surpassed the British GDP. Huh. But that was beginning, I think, in the 1950s. And so, can you tell us, Eduardo, about how this economic uh, renaissance happened in Italy. I have to say, you. I'm glad that you you are with me today because I can say that that was um, helped a lot um, thanks to the American support because Americans started to support Italian economy uh, to rebuild our country. Of course, there was uh, there was a reason for that. Uh, Italy was exactly in the middle of that. Um, of the border, yeah, between uh, between the West and, and the East. Yeah. Uh, Italy was the the country of the biggest uh, communist party in the Western world, probably 
first the Italian one, the second was in, in France. So uh, Italy was a very specific country. There was a huge communist movement. And so the um, United States had the interest in Italy, um, um, namely that Italy could uh, re, uh, start again uh, a new life. Um, and that's why they supported that. In, especially in the 50s and the half of the 60s, Italy was really um, going well uh, economically uh, because there was a country to rebuild. So new, new uh, houses, new roads. Uh, we started to build our highways in the 50s. Mm. Uh, the, the first uh, highways in Italy were started um, to be built in the 50s uh, uh, up to the um, half of the 70s then. Well, to be fair, so, the, the same thing happened in the United States. Uh, we have the interstate highway system, which was uh, championed by our uh, president, uh, Eisenhower, who came back mm -hmm. from World War II. And it was modeled after the Autobahn. And it's it's nothing that uh, you were catching up on, really. It was it was sort of a new concept for most countries, I think. Yes. There's uh, some interesting numbers, just to throw some numbers out really quick. Um, Italy emerged, this is from oh, an economist by the name of George Hildebrand, who seems like he's probably the most boring, I'm sure he's dead now, but I mean, <laughs> he's probably the most boring person in the world to get a drink with. But uh, Italy emerged from uh, World War II with about one third of its fixed capital destroyed. And so that's, you know, that's just, you know, a third of, you know, all of the infrastructure that's, you know, geared towards, you know, making money or whatever. But almost immediately, uh, this is a, a thing where you know, one of the great things America is great at bombing you and then also extending the, the blank, you know, the blank checkbook to, uh, to help you rebuild. This is one of the success stories, though. It, it, Italy really recovers much better than even Germany or Japan did. And, it, and the, the investment numbers seem small now, but uh, it was... Uh, over between 1948 and 19, I think 54, uh, America starts. We it, we give foreign aid to the tune of 203 million dollars in 1948, down to 66 million dollars in 1954, and that investment produces better returns in Italy than uh, than were uh, seen by the American economy at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, like it, the the it's really sort of astonishing the numbers that the uh, that the Italian economy was able to put up in that, the that years. Makes sense. I, I think also what Eduardo is pointing out correctly is that because Italy was um, was an older country uh, and much of the industry was less modern, I think if you do put money into a place like that, the benefits are going to be larger than a, a more complicated, advanced economy like the United States at the time. Uh, so you will, you will, I think you should expect to see better returns. Uh, I also have some numbers. Uh, between 1953 and 1973, the Italian economy uh, average annual growth was 6.3%, which is actually very, very good um, compared yeah. to America today or most countries, excluding China, although coronavirus, who knows. But um, most Asian economies today do not have that. Uh, historically, the Asian tigers were probably the historically the most uh, impressive um, outside of, of something like 6.3%. Uh, but also, 
1961, the economy actually was very heavily industrial, which was somewhat unique, I think, in even the West, because in more advanced countries uh, like the United States, there was, even at after the war, the war in, in the 60s, there was a transition away from industry where they started moving production to other cheaper countries, perhaps like Italy uh, at the time. But now it's obviously turned into the former communist countries, China and uh, Eastern Europe, uh, in, in Europe's case, where a lot of the industry is gone. But in 1961, 38% of Italian economy was engaged in manufacturing, which is very high uh, compared to the United States, where probably only... 20% and then maybe 10% of the people employed are actually engaged in industry. Uh, back in the 60s in the United States, it was probably closer to uh, 20, 25%, maybe even 30%, but it's it's dropped steadily since then. Uh, so that was, that was very high, and I think it in- indicates some of the strength in the mechanical and chemical industries. So automotive, obviously, there's lots of car companies in Italy, um, and then all the feed-in companies for that, for steel, and I think the policy that was interesting was the the government did have tariffs. So in other words, if you want to, if you're Italian and you want to buy a French car, you're going to have to pay a large tax. And so that encourages uh, consumption of Italian-produced goods, which encourages Italian industry. Uh, and that's something that was common in most countries. But I think in particular, Italy used that to develop uh, the industry. Uh, Fiat is probably the best example of this, uh, the largest yes. company, I think, in the, at the time and probably today as well. Um, still very large. I and, just... Uh, please. Yes, yes, please. No, no, go, go ahead. No, no, I just wanted to point out a few things to understand better this, this time of our history. Uh, basically, the, how it was possible, this kind of uh, economic growth. It was possible also because there was an agreement with the the communists. Uh, communists in Italy had a very specific policy because after the war, uh, it, it, together with the Soviet Union, they basically decided to uh, give up the revolution. They said, okay, in Italy we do not want a revolution. We accept some kind of socialist democracy. They became what we can call social demo- social democrats. Yes, so uh, they gave up this thing. Even though, of course, people still believed part of them that well, in Italy maybe a, a communist revolution is possible. We can be like a Soviet Union. But these were small groups within communist party. Communist uh, um, elites they really knew that uh, in Italy there will never be a revolution. There will never be a Soviet. In Italy, and even in Moscow, they knew it. So this basically was uh, an agreement with the the other elites, the basically the uh, Democrazia Cristiana, so this uh, Christian Democra- Democrats, uh, to uh, establish governments, of course without communists, but with their support moral support, especially in the 50s. This was very helpful for uh, the economy because we did not have uh, political problems at least uh, until the end of the 60s. uh, uh, At that point, things uh, change. But before that, because of this policy, um, that that creates stability, economic stability, um, stability in the 
uh, society. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was that was a reason why economy gro- the growth was so um, so fast and so um, uh, good. And another thing is that uh, is, uh, the state was the owner of these large industries because now we forget it in Italy because now if you speak about um, state-founded uh, companies, uh, our elites uh, start to, to, to shout. But uh, uh, Italy had that and had that for a long time. I, I, I recall, for instance, until the 80s, we still had this really large company producing everything from, uh, uh, from uh, food uh, to um, cars, uh, if we exclude a, a fiat, but there were these kind of companies. So uh, this means that if you are, uh, if you bought something Italian, this was basically something um, something uh, state founded, and a lot of people were employed in these large industrial uh, businesses. So uh, this is another characteristic. We can we can make a, a comparison with, uh, for instance, uh, South Korea. Yes. Uh, in, South Co- in South Korea, in the 60s, we have something similar. Basically, states support this kind of, this, this kind of, uh, of business um, with large participation. They well, have like 50, 51%, uh, 55%. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's basically how it was. Yeah, that, that is the, the fascist model in many ways. It was the corporatist yes. system, as we call it. I, I know Alitalia is probably the, the example that many people in the West know because they've had to go into bankruptcy a few times and the government comes in to save them. I don't know other companies, um, but I think the South Korean... Um, Example is very good. Uh, the, their system is uh, the Chebol, and yeah. their economy is just controlled by basically like three or four companies. You got Samsung, uh, Hyundai, um, LG. Uh, the, those yeah. are the, the huge ones. Samsung, the country. That's how I think of how I think of South South Korea. Well, it's it's a it, we're actually going to do a show soon on South Korea, so hopefully we uh, we can make comparisons. I'm actually curious well, about that now. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about, though, is, is that all of this growth, uh, all all of this post war growth. I'm especially since it's industrial and so much and so much uh, so much of the Italian labor. One of the another one of the interesting things is uh, Italy had. I mean, they see a lot of economic growth, but. Uh, in 1953, which is the first year that unemployment statistics are available, um, they show around 9% unemployment, which is, I mean, wages are rising year on year um, by a lot. Um, total, you know, total real GNP is rising quite a bit year on year. But there is a lot of unemployment, and all of the data that I can find indicates that most of that unemployment is in the South. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and and so I like I'm I'm curious how much of this development is in you know in the place where there is already the infrastructure for industrial development. So how how much of this post-war boom is is you know concentrated in the North as opposed to in the South? I think most of that. Uh, if you see, uh, they, the government tried to build uh, indust- industrial uh, areas in the south, mm-hmm. uh, and they they are still there. 
uh, of course, now less um, in, in a so, not so good health like it was before, but uh, they tried, they attempt. Uh, you know, w- since the unification, we had the problem with the, with, with the South and no government uh, um, uh, had a kind of solution for that. For many reasons, economical, uh, because of, of criminality, yeah. um, because, because of many things. And so uh, they tried. But I want to say uh, regarding the unemployment, yeah, it's true. There was an economic boom, but we do not have to forget that after the war, uh, thousands of people uh, um, moved from Italy to United States to Switzerland, to France, to Australia. So there was uh, unemployment. There was unemployment. And, uh, <laughs> and lo- Ar- Argentina. <laughs> Argentina, Argentina, of course. So um, a large group of Italian, uh, I have also people in my family, they moved back in the 50s to, uh, to, to Germany, to United States, and so on. So... Um, yeah, it's important to to underline this that the situation was okay, but still not completely okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the southern question is, I think, still still there. Yeah. The um, I think the Inzerangheta are the the largest uh, mafia group now, and I yes. don't know what you, I don't know if mafia is the right term. That's what we say in America, but uh, I'm sure you know the the uh, the word at least. Uh, in Italy, and I've, I've unfortunately I've heard that the the expansion of the organized crime has gone to the north a little bit, especially after the economic problems uh, ten years ago that started yeah. around the financial crisis. Uh, so it's I don't know I don't know what to do about that. Um, but to stay positive, I have a few more numbers, and, and we can maybe talk about <laughs> the, the crime if you want. But I mean, I don't know. No, I don't no, have we any can answers stay, for we can it. stay positive. You yeah. know, I agree with you. <laughs> Good. Good. Okay. So this is an exciting time. I mean, I, I think the um, I, I was watching something about uh, I think Fiat. I've always liked uh, you know, Gianni Agnelli. He's a very interesting guy. Okay. We, I hope we can talk about him, but. Um, his his company was Fiat, and so they they make uh, I forget what it stands for. It's something Torino, Torino at the end. It's an acronym. So a lot of people yes. th- think it's not an Italian word, but it's actually just four Italian words in one. So it is. And they were at the center of all of this. Uh, Time Magazine in America even put him on the cover. Gianni Anelli, who was running the company, and it was talking about his his kingdom. Uh, they used to call him, I think, the senator in Italy um, and it was the, the subtitle of the Time magazine was uh, Italy where they they worship the industrialists um, and yeah. it, it's it's all sort of in the north though and at the center of it is this company and they were creating all these cars and other companies were making the motorcycles but just to give you some numbers from 1950 to 1964 the number of automobiles in Italy increased by 13 times, more than 13 times, from 342,000 to 4.67 million. Uh, motorcycles, uh, which actually started at a higher higher number, interestingly, and if you've ever been to Italy, the, the streets are very small, and so that maybe makes some sense, and maybe you don't have to go very far, so motor, motorcycle is, is a good idea, but that was going uh, from 700,000 to 4.3 million. And I was watching this thing about uh, the Agnellis and, and Fiat, and they were saying 
I think it was the the Punto, the Fiat Punto, the very small, mm-hmm. uh, very popular, uh, not really a family car, but a lot of families liked it or a lot, a lot of people liked it. And the, the saying was that many Italians in this time were born in the back of a Fiat Punto. Uh, so I, I think it's just an exciting time. You got like Dolce Vita, like these movies yes. coming out, Italian cinema. Uh, so a lot of good things. Um, and I, I would love to see that again, obviously. But um, we, we've, we'll, we'll get to where the problem started, I think, later. But just wanted to add some more good things. Uh, what else do I have on that? Uh, well, you, it's also worth, I think it's also worth pointing out that w- there is the American aid. Uh, around 80% of you know, foreign, invas- foreign investment and foreign aid coming into Italy in this period is from America or you know, our little lapdog, the, the, the United Kingdom. But um, there are reasons other than because we feel bad for bombing them. Um, to you know, for, for all of, for all of this money to, to start pouring in, and one of them is the the stability of the Italian lira in the in the in the post war period. Yeah. This this I mean, and this seems to have been to have been a real government imperative to maintain a stable um, you know maintain a stable currency for you know to attract international investment, and that that also seems to have been. A major driving force in the, you know in, in the post-war boom. I think that that yes. might have been true, but uh, I think in the 1970s and 80s, the government started doing the opposite, where they were trying to make the Italian lira very weak so that they could support yeah. the, the export economy. But I think right. you you might be right uh, in the beginning, and I, I did read that the um, the uh, Italy was able to attract a lot of foreign investment. Uh, because they they really were uh, very competitive from the, the point of view of labor costs. Uh, specifically, in 1968, the average annual salary of Italian industrial workers, in particular, was only two thousand dollars, which was and again, th- this is 1968, so every country was making less around that time. But uh, compared to Germany, this was. Um, one third less than Germans. This was actually half half of what the French were making, and this was uh, three quarters less than what Americans were making. So Americans were making eight thousand dollars at the time, whereas Italians were only making two thousand dollars. So if you're an American company and you want to set up uh, production in Europe, Italy might be a good place to start at that time, for that reason, and to support the Italian lira, uh, so it doesn't fall, so that the foreign investors' assets do not depreciate. I guess is maybe it makes sense as long as the as long as the costs are still competitive i think that's the problem that happened later and also uh, the weak uh, lira uh, attract um, a very large uh, number of tourists because we right. do not have to forget that one of our uh, best business is tourism we have a, a lot to offer and when i i still remember when lira w- was like that we attracted a lot of tourists from germany from northern europe really a lot of them now less because now you understand you can go to well you can go to croatia and you pay half <laughs> and you have uh, and you have the, the the beauty of the the sea and yes. the panoramas and so on but uh, in, back then 
when it was impossible to go to Eastern Europe, Italy was basically the resort of, of uh, Europeans. And uh, we had a lot, a lot of them. Also because the lira was weak. And for, uh, for Germans, it was really cheap to come to us to spend like uh, 15 days, like 20 days of, of their vacations. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, as you mentioned before, I think the, the fall of the communist uh, Eastern yeah. European countries in particular, China is still communist. Uh, we'll see how long that, that stays that way. But it's um, it really was a, a, a big impact on Italy. Uh, but before that happened, I want to talk about uh, Il Sorpasso. So 1987, I think, was when the Italian government famously declared that Italy was now bigger than the United Kingdom. Yeah. Now, some people claim that this was through statistical manipulation or maybe the government was just spending more money to make the economy big. And they were also, as I was mentioning, they were devaluing the lira. There was an interesting, um, again, I'll, I'll bring up Gianni Agnelli. He, he was still in charge of fiat at the time, and he went to the government and he asked them, I, I need a devaluation of the lira to support the, the, the industry uh, of fiat in order to remain competitive to sell cars in other European countries or Africa or wherever they were selling. And the government told him no. Um, and he then proceeded to to fire or lay off about 15,000 workers. And when the economy recovered a little bit, most of them did not come back. And so I think this is what's interesting about the labor situation in Italy, where the, the wages were going up and up. And we mentioned the communist also, the communist party is very powerful in Italy. I don't know today how important it is with you know the Soviet Union gone, but at, in the 80s, it was still... A thing, and a lot of the communists, I believe, were represented in the labor unions, industrial labor unions. Yeah, and I think the solution for giving them more lira was to make the lira itself less valuable around the world, and that worked for a while. And if the government did not approve of this, then you see how the workers have to suffer a little bit. But I think the wages were going up to make these unions happy. And as long as you could devalue, this worked. But when the Soviet Union fell and you had these less less uh, importance placed on Italy, more competition from Eastern Europe and China in particular, uh, and then the euro making that devaluation impossible, Italy really had a hard time economically. And so I think this is where we start yeah. seeing the problems happen. This is really a crucial moment because up to the, um, the end of the 80s, we had really, I, I really don't know whether or not it, it was true what happened in 1987, but I can recall the, those times. And I really, I, I really f understood that we were better off than, than before. I mean, there were, we had more money. It, it, I, I can tell you this, right now it's not possible anymore, but back, back then it was possible in a family that a wife was at home being a housewife, 
with children and the husband just working yeah. and having money, having money for all the family. Now that's not possible anymore because if you do not work and you're a wife as well, there is a problem. You cannot uh, keep the family. Uh, so th there is a difference. There is a difference. But uh, yeah, as you mentioned, after the, the, the collapse of Soviet Union, we had this uh, shift, probably also for geopolitical reasons. Uh, Italy was not an uh, uh, essential country anymore. I mean, the, the border moved uh, to, to east, uh, further to east. And then uh, Italy was not at the center of that geopolitical strategy anymore for the United States. Uh, especially and that's why we we did not count uh, so much as before is um, that why the italian politicians at least and maybe the italian people also i'm not sure wanted to become members of the the euro currency was this something that they felt like politically this is how italy becomes important again uh, there was this a phrase that um, Italy needs Europe more than Europe needs Italy now. Why did that happen? Because it, it does not seem to have helped the the country. Uh, in my you opinion. know, in in Italy, in Italy now, you uh, realize that that was probably uh, something uh, more useful for Germany than Italy because uh, back course, then it, of course. <laughs> Italy was uh, Italy was in much better condition than uh, economically than Germany. So for us was not very convenient to join a Euro a European Union. Uh, for Germany yes and uh, it was also convenient for them because uh, Italy then would be weaker uh, economically and that's what is you can see right now. Um, so um, yeah, we I mean politicians were trying to sell us this idea that we join European Union, everything will be fine. But we understood very quickly, especially when we got uh, euro currency, that uh, uh, that was not going to happen. I mean, uh, uh, suddenly what you bought for uh, one thousand lira, you needed to you you needed uh, uh, two thousand lira in euro hmm. you understand right mm -hmm. so you want to be, you buy a coffee and before you needed half and now you need uh, uh, twice and that's that it, it's from one day to another because in italy there were no uh, controls the, the the state did not control at all this shift from from lira to euro and you understand that <laughs> uh, people suddenly uh, that the money they had before after that were just cut and yeah, so uh, the uh... you know I've never understood the the the, the concept. Of, it's sort of interesting. The European Common Market, you know, the, the I can't remember what the name of it was before the European Union. I think that might have been it, just the Common Market, yeah. versus the you know the concept of the euro. It's sort of interesting. The you know the Lega Nord that Salvini's party today. Uh, it, it was. You know, it came together from a group of regional parties, especially and especially in Venice, uh, the idea of Italy joining the, the uh, joining the European com uh, Common Market initially actually appealed strongly to uh, the you know the nation Venetian separatists because they they thought they would get more autonomy 
from the Italian government if they if they joined the you know the European Union, so or or the or the European Common Market. So I could see some attraction there. How like some people might think it would be a good idea, but the euro the euro thing just astonishes me. I I I'm yeah. look, looking looking back on you know the introduction of the euro. It's hard to see how anybody thought that would be good for anybody but Germany. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's definitely that. Yeah, I mean Germany is a very unique country in that they actually balance their their budget. They they do not spend more than they have, and they're very hard workers, and they have a very strong uh, mechanical and chemical industry like Italy historically did. But they don't rely upon these these currency manipulations like the Italians did, and without that, I think. Um, Italy had a problem. And also Germany, uh, even though reunification after the Berlin Wall and uh, East and West came together, uh, Germany had a very cheap source of labor uh, suddenly in its own country. And so that, that benefited it also with Eastern Europe, or excuse me, Eastern Germany being, I don't know, about one-third the population which was used to making much less and so much of the factories started moving there and then shortly thereafter they moved things to poland and then china eventually but uh, that pattern helped them a little bit and also centering the and being the largest economy in europe and having the center of the european central bank i believe in frankfurt's uh, gives the the germans a lot of power to control things in their favor and I, I've, I have a lot of respect for Germany, but I think if you talk to some honest Germans, they will admit, and we actually talked to a German um, about a year, year and a half ago about reunification, and he, he said that the euro has damaged uh, Southern Europe, and he doesn't think it's good, and, and not even for Germans, because the money that they make is not really worth anything, because even though on on paper, as we say, but on the in the bank and the numbers they have money it can't buy anything outside of germany necessarily to the point where his example was in greece greek yogurt which is you know pretty famous in the world for being uh, very good they make it cheaper in germany and then sell it to greeks it's so backwards you know it's like let the greeks make yogurt i mean if they can make nothing else at least let them make food but the eurozone has just completely destroyed the the local economies of these smaller countries that once had very healthy societies and you know we mentioned greece briefly but greece has had just a horrible time horrible time after the euro and i feel uh i feel bad and i I think they should just separate it's very simple in my opinion but you know the people who run the governments in most countries are the people with money and i think they're (laughs) i think they they're part of the global elite that wants things to continue the way it has now now you know uh, you can notice it that for instance there are countries like Poland, like Czech Republic, they are they belong to European Union, but they do not have euro currency. That's a, another uh, interesting. And yeah. if we 
we want even strange thing because smart. <laughs> it's smart smart very smart because they receive money from european union if you go to poland you can see oh the roads are great the, the roads you know i went to poland yeah. once and we we drove from germany and poland is a communist it's still like yeah. the, the infrastructure is very communist so it's horrible but you can see the new roads have these right. big signs with the the blue and the yellow stars paid for yes. by the european union yes. and it's like oh uh, smart <laughs> the, and this is the clear uh, policy of european union uh, uh putting a lot of money in the eastern europe especially poland and czech republic why well you can understand why there is this thing with russia so the the strategy is to build a very strong countries economies in poland yes. and czech republic as well in order to uh to contrast uh, Russian influence in the area. Um, they are trying to do the same with uh, Ukraine. Well, that, there is more complicated the, the thing. But in Poland, you can totally say now that Poland is much more um, developed now than it was uh, 10 years ago even. Um, exactly because of that. But in Poland, the, the elites are uh, smart enough to say, no, we don't want euro currency now. Yeah. We we don't really want because for them it's really convenient. Yeah, it's smart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We 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 in the United States who don't do not trust our government uh, in general, but in particular we do not trust the, the I will say the the globalist government of mm. the West. I don't think we have countries anymore. Uh, but what's interesting is these Eastern European countries like Poland and Hungary in particular uh, were kind of forgotten about being that important and they're also they remember being occupied by the soviet union and i mm -hmm. think they have a very much stronger nationalist uh, eth right. uh, etho uh, ethos because they they remember big empires controlling them and they don't want that again so you know they'll play with the the west and the the soros empire uh and get the money that they need but they're not stupid uh and they're smarter a little bit because of i think their experience to be honest um, and I, I think that's great. I think we can learn from them. Um, but what I wanted to maybe start talking about is, uh, today in Italy, you have, um, Salvini, who is very interesting to us because he speaks, um, even more than Donald Trump about some of the truths of what's happening. One of the problems that I, th I see with Donald Trump is that his children are married to uh, to Jews, and he's done business with Jews a lot. And so, in America, is obviously very uh, connected to Israel, for good or for worse. Uh, many would say worse, but it's just a reality. And so, Donald Trump has a little bit more complications to discuss things like George Soros. But there was a speech that Salvini gave last year, I think, with um, Marine Le Pen. Uh, and a few other uh, nationalist uh, leaders in Europe. And he, he mentioned Soros. He mentioned the multinationals that are destroying the, the people of Europe. And I was very impressed to hear that because you do not hear that level of sophistication from Donald Trump, who, who is not stupid. He's very smart, but I don't think his understanding of how the United States and the West in, in general operate from the influence of the banks and the people who want to keep the world, uh, the peoples of the world very weak and part of this kind of 
boring consumer class that just buys things and does not have any identity. So I was very impressed by Salvini. So can you maybe talk about how he has become sort of the voice of Italy? And I also forgot to mention uh, Berlusconi, but I, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on him if possible. But how did that transition happen? Because the Berlusconi, in many ways, was like Donald Trump of Italy, like the wealthiest right. man and right. media empire, did some construction like uh, Donald Trump. And now you have a guy who's actually speaking more from the heart, which which is, which right. is cool. And, and I like that. Um, so please, can, please, Eduardo, tell us about the, the situation in Italy today with the politics. You know the, the history of Salvini and the the, um, the, the league is uh, really um, peculiar because you see that this was a party, uh, an independentist party. So at the very beginning in the 90s, they did they they, they wanted to split Italy. They wanted to um, they, they they spoke about independence. So we want to be alone. We uh, North Italy for Northern Italians. They, they forgot to mention that in northern Italy live a lot of uh, southern Italy. Exactly. Mo they moved in the 50s to work in those large companies we, yes. we spoke about before. Yes. So... Um, so in the in the 90s, this party was, uh, had a great success because of that, because it was a new language, it was a new topics, it was something like from from the from the um, the, the lowest part of the society. Um, pe people perceived them as normal people going to the um, the government and uh, changing radically. But then what happened? It happened that the league basically uh, found an agreement with the establishment. Elite and so with Berlusconi mainly. Berlusconi had the league in uh, his governments, and uh, people did not like that. Uh, and uh, it ended up with uh, the league losing a lot of votes. Uh, when Salvini took the party, the party was like, let's say, in the last elections before Salvini joined, um, if I don't want to be mistaken, but like four, four, five percent of, of votes. So really small really small. So Salvini decided to to change somehow the the, um, the, the goal of the party, not speaking about uh, independence, not uh, uh, federalism anymore, but uh, focusing on national unity. So uh, regaining uh, the, our national unity, our economical uh, independence. Um, in fact, you can see Salvini is uh, well perceived uh, also in southern Italy. Hmm. That would be uh, that. That's a bit strange because if you think ten years ago, that would be a, a, absolutely okay. different, right? For southern people, uh, Salvini was like uh, the northern league. Yeah. Now Salvini is uh, um, is perceived as someone. Uh, new and someone uh, interesting, uh, even in the south. Yeah. Uh, in the last elections, uh, the league got seventeen percent, so it's a it's a great success. And yeah. um, so basically, this is the transition of the league from the from the beginning uh, up to now. And Salvini also is a very good. Uh, um, it's a smart uh, guy. I mean, he knows uh, what uh, how to use language, what topic uh, uh, to talk about. So. Uh, he um, very often speaks about immigration because we know he knows that we have a problem with that. Yeah. Uh, he speaks about economical uh, po uh, power, uh, about this, this Soros and so on. So he is very good in that. Uh, 
what happened lately? The problem is that Salvini, before the election, Salvini and also the Five Star Movements, uh, they spoke about uh, going out from European Union. They promised that. They said continuously they were promising that okay if we we are elected we will go out mm-hmm. we will leave we will leave this this hell uh, and that not happened and that was something like um, that disappointed a lot of people they believed uh, in uh, in this that we could finally go out from European Union and that that not happened so so so, so the United Kingdom which under Nigel Farage really and it took him a good 20 years probably to get yeah. this to where it is now where finally the United Kingdom is its own country again outside of the European Union I think it, it it's well, probably a little bit too who much are to the expect five star people Oh that was Sorry, I don't uh know they interrupt you but the the, the, the five star people the the five star they seem I have not been able to really ascertain what five star the movement is or anything. I understand that a lot of the dis like a, because that coalition fell apart, and I that the the five star people are a little bit stranger. Uh, you know, they're they're euro skeptics, and they're also kind of weird. I think their their leader yeah. is a comedian. So yeah, I, I don't yeah, know if he still is. Yeah, he, he is. He is. Well, basically, five star movements is really uh, hard to understand because these people always spoke uh, uh, beyond the la- right and left. You can find in this party people who are clearly on the left side, but you can also find the people who are on the right side. So it's really that's that's the, the, was the, the 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 reason of their success in the last uh, Italian election because they were able to speak uh, to everybody, and uh, they were uh, anti-establishment. So we are going um, against the old politicians, the old system. Uh, we do not believe in democracy. So they appealed a lot of people, especially uh, young, young generations. Um, what, what's going on now that after they, they, they formed the government, then they split because obviously there were, uh, um, um, there were differences between the league and, and, uh, and them. Um, now they are still on in, in the government with uh, with um, center left uh, coalition, uh, and and Salvini is in the opposition. So uh, what I would say is that yeah, they also lost some kind of uh, support because of this European Union thing. I mean, also they spoke really loud about that that we want to go out, but then it did not happen. I know, and I totally understand your point that it's not an easy thing, but uh, you have to consider that these people, from saying we are against and we want to go out, they just moved to well, we cannot go out. We yes. accept. That. Well, let me ask you why, because, you know, in, in the United yeah. States, for example, Donald Trump, the first thing he said was, we're going to build a wall. And it's been four right. years and there's really nothing changed. And right. I, I wonder what is happening in Italy, because the realities of governments are much more complicated, obviously, than campaigning when you are right. not responsible for anything. All you're doing is talking to cameras and reporters and you can say anything you want uh, versus actually being in the government where you have a budget, you have thousands of people trying to bother you every day and you're trying to make decisions and every decision makes other people angry. And 
it's just hard. Now, I'm not making right. excuses, but what do you think the reason is other than the realities of government? Do you think there is a motivation to deceive the Italian people or is there a an external power that is influencing the politicians once they are in power to do what the bigger power wants? For example, uh, in the United States, it's really the influence, I think, of the Zionists that continue our right, involvement yeah. in Israel and the Middle East. Uh, I don't know in Italy what those people would be, but I think that those powerful interests are everywhere. And so my question is, is that part of why you did not see the leaving from the Eurozone? It is, it is, it is. Uh, and I would say that in our case, it's the European Union itself. It's Germany. They really, um, they, they really pressure uh, Italy not to do anything uh, against European Union. With what? Um, with, with money? With uh... with money? With money? With laws? Uh, they they have a, a strict control on our economy. You know, uh, our governments cannot do anything on uh, the economic matter. So the, as long as you do something, mm. the day after European Union comes and say, "Look, you are doing this. If you do this, you will pay that." Mm. So uh, you understand that the government uh, does not have uh, um, basically anything to do if you if you remove economy, if you remove uh, uh, this uh, precise uh, um, aspect of, of um, po politics. So what do you have? I mean, uh, what you can decide on culture. And that's that's it, because um, we are not. We have to understand that Italy, and not only Italy, I guess Greece, Spain, we are not independent. We cannot decide what kind of economy, economic policy we want to establish, because we always have to um, to ask European Union whether or not we can do some steps. What about and this coronavirus? Why. Do you do you think that's going to change things? Do you think maybe that will will help uh, Salvini and that, others that, get some decision? You know, Salvini today uh, is uh, he's getting his part because he's every day tweeting about <laughs> well, if you listen to us before, if you close the border before, yeah. now we would not have this. Yes, so you understand that for Salvini is really uh, a positive moment because <laughs> he's yeah. he's just uh, uh, how to say uh, riding this, this, um, yeah. this moment, right? Trump does the so, same thing. So, uh, yeah. and, 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 yes. I was saying my concern about the, the coronavirus content, you know, or, you know, Italy's six, I, I'm afraid the way this will turn out is that Italy, if Italy successfully quarantines, um, you, the, the coronavirus and it doesn't spread to the rest of Europe, this will be viewed as a victory of inter-European cooperation, and if and if it <laughs> fails, then it will be the fault of the Italian government for not allowing enough, you know, European cooperation. Yeah, that, that, that's what. Yeah, that's Could the be. way it always is. Uh, I tell you, in Italy, there are people who claim that uh, this is a kind of uh, price we have to pay because of our uh, uh, friendship with China. The government, the the, the League Five Star Movement government, uh, uh, signed an agreement with China. And our politicians went there 
um, to 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 meet with um, um, Chinese politicians, and I think this was not very well perceived in uh, European Union uh, and in United States as well. So uh, there is some kind of uh, you know theory about that that maybe it might be something uh, we have to pay for. Um, our government has to pay for. So. Um, Going back to the question, I would also add that, yeah, the politicians are also afraid. Politicians know very well that uh, it would be okay to uh, step out from the European Union, but they are also afraid of the consequences because they are afraid to end up like Greece. Yes. I say, if we yes. do something like that, the, the day after Germany and other countries will start to uh, blackmail you somehow. And not only and not only morally, also practically, and that would be that that has a consequences. You know, people then change uh, mind very quickly. One day you are on the top, and the other day you are uh, uh, you are oh, down, on right? The bottom. Because of that, yeah. on the I th bottom. I yeah. think I think the fear especially comes from the politicians because they are correct in that they they know how we call them low information voters in America, but you could just basically say normal people who do not read as much or work in places where they know as much about how the economy or politics work, they will see one politician in power and then a bad thing happen and they will blame that politician. Right. And yeah, if, that's true. if something bad happens, the politician will lose power and they'll lose their job. And it takes a lot of courage and a very good communicator to explain why this is a temporary problem and it's going to get better. Now, most politicians and most people are not able to do that, but it might be something that is possible. I just don't know how really, uh, the realities of the world are very complicated and predicting things is difficult, but I, I look at the United Kingdom and with a lot of curiosity because they have left the EU, and the last I checked, Britain is not on fire, and people are fine. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think it's going to be as right. bad. That's right. You know, it is all, all this. Pro I mean, I, I I like to read also English English uh, websites, and they were all about, oh my God, what is going on in in Britain now? I mean, people crying, uh, people losing job, uh, immigrants uh, have to go back. You know, all this this thing, catastrophic propaganda yeah. about the Brexit. Yeah. Well, to to be specific, the, the the simplest thing that Greece and Italy and maybe Spain can do, or Ireland, uh, is just say, we're sorry, we do not have the money, we're going to start over. And right. you know who did that? Right. Was, I was Iceland. Iceland did that. After the financial crisis, they told all the people who had money in Iceland and the banks, they said, sorry, we're broke. And then the Icelandic currency went down, like it used to in Italy. And guess what? Iceland now has some of the one of the best economies in in Europe because the Icelandic currency is I think it's uh, probably the kronor most Scandinavian countries have kronor um, it's very cheap and because they have geothermal power Italy also has geothermal a lot of volcanoes um, they make a lot of aluminum now 
and they sell aluminum. Now, I don't, I don't think Salvini probably can sell the Italian people on the aluminum uh, platform or the the promise of <laughs> aluminum exports, but I just want to say, based, look, based in aluminum. Gold. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you you can be fine, and a lot of the 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 media is controlled by the banks and the people who own the banks. I won't be more specific, but we can understand who that is. And they don't want to see their debt to turn into zero. They want to be paid back. And you just say, sorry, no more. And we're going to make, we're going to make cars in, in Greece. We're going to make yogurt again. And you can go make, uh, make loans to your own people, but don't make them to us because we need to get our economy and our people back. And I think it would be fine, honestly. You just have to communicate that to people. You know, an, an interesting topic here would be to analyze the, how, how it's, it, is, it is possible to form, to educate a new elite of, of people. Because uh, now I do not see, really see it. Uh, people who are able to take decisions, we do not have... Uh, in Italy now, and uh, even if there are, it, it's they, they are not strong enough because this is a crucial point. I think if you do not have really a good people, people with a strategy, people who are able to see uh, in the long term and not mm. just simply what I will do tomorrow, yeah. um, well, that's that's a problem. That's a real problem because uh, you understand politicians in Italy, they uh, pray Amazon to stay in Italy, you understand? Because Amazon is seen as the, I don't know, the, the, the only hope for our country, no, Amazon. That's wrong. <laughs> that's wrong. You understand? You know, in, in America, it's no better. I, I, I remember Amazon was was trying to get all the states, which are really countries uh, historically in the oh, United yeah. States, to fight oh, God, with each so other bad. over getting yeah. the second Amazon headquarters. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, what is Amazon? It's basically this very computer-driven, efficient company that makes the job of your mother and your... In the United States, we say mom and pop, but it's, an, it's a small business that is run by a family that historically would do the job of Amazon. Am, all Amazon is is a catalog with delivery, and they don't make anything. They just sell people things. And in Italy, it's interesting because the percentage of people uh, engaged in small business, as we've talked about, is much higher than most countries. And in today, it's yeah. probably getting smaller because the multinationals like Amazon are coming in and destroying that. And that's why you see unemployment, because historically, most people would make their own um, they have a coffee shop or they would have a small clothing store or they would have uh, maybe even make shoes or uh, they would be uh, construction companies or there would be someone for the construction company who would make the the metalwork. Uh, it would just be done in a local shop. This actually creates a very good stable society. It may not be efficient. It may not make as much money in total as a company like Amazon, but it allows normal people with families to to happen and to survive and to do better. As you said before, people in Italy could have the mother raise the children and the father right. work only. And the same thing is in America and most countries that have these multinationals like Amazon. Both mother and father have to work and they don't have time or money to have many kids. And I wanted to talk about the 
number of children in Italy because that's a mm -hmm. big problem. And that's why I think they have all these immigrants coming because the businesses want the workers and they want the customers. And it's the same thing in the United States and the rest of the European countries. They, they want these immigrants because they need money. Uh, they, they just want more people. And the problem I think in Italy is symptomatic. I think of the rest of the West, it's just even more acute because the, the, they call it the total fertility rate. The number of children born per woman in Italy now is I think close to the lowest in, in the world, if not just Europe, it's about 1.2 uh, children per, per woman. And in, yeah. in the United States, I think it's maybe 1.6. It's not very good. And so we depend on immigration for making Walmart and Amazon and all these big it, companies happy. But the, the normal people do not benefit from this. I just wanted to put that out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you are totally right. And I can tell you more. Not only for economical reason they need immigrants. They need immigrants also because most of politicians uh, tell us that, well, you do not have children. We are going to be an old country. So we have to replace Italians with immigrants. Instead of focusing on our people trying yes. to do something to to um, to save families to increase them, no, yes. they say, well, you do not have children. Let's let's welcome um, Middle Eastern with five, six, seven children. That's that's how we will save our um, demography. You know, what I mean? <laughs> it's not yours; so, it's someone else's. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, that, that's that's uh, that's why I say that we do not have really politicians with with a clear view uh, on in the long run because uh, everything is about that. You know, immigration is to uh, for a cheap labor force and for uh, replacing local people um, yeah. like that. So it's. Um, it's uh, and then and then because of that yeah, you are right if you go to any um, old town in italy of these beautiful old cities you will not find there any uh, shop anymore except those of these large uh, multinational companies very rich starbucks uh, oh, Yes, other other shops, uh, food shops, clothes shop. They they do not cannot be there because the rent is really high, and uh, there is no basically people who buy because there are of course in every city four or five uh, malls like uh, big shopping centers, and then that's that's how it is. Yeah. In this sense, we are very similar to United States. We we always uh, we Italy was always a very um, a, a very absorbing a lot from United States uh, well, culturally and, and, and America and, uh, from yeah. Italy as well. With five million uh, Italians immigrated to the yeah. United States between eighteen eighty and nineteen fifty. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm probably on the on the whole more more enthusi uh, optimistic is probably the better word. On the whole, I'm probably more optimistic about you know Italy's ability to pull back from the brink because I view so many of these problems as so is I, maybe one of the problems is Americanism. Yes. <laughs> you know that you know a a Amazon is our problem. You know it's, it's it's hard to see America pulling back from the Amazon problem before we can go careening over the cliff. Uh, you could see, you know, countries like Italy have a, you know, that aren't as fully committed have, have still have the chance to step back and say no. Yeah. 
I, I, I just want to add one. The last thing is that this game with Amazon is a, a um, it's a lost game because basically these companies can even come to Italy, but then when they see that in Poland, in in Czech Republic, in India, they can open there with with a cheaper labor force, they will tell you goodbye. That's that's quite simple. Yeah. I mean, uh, that you cannot rely on them to, to build your your nation and economy anymore. Yeah, yeah. And I think in the American system, uh, money is thicker than blood. Yeah, that's right. Well, you know, they had this moment in Greece where it looked very much like they were just going to say no, and you know, to, and, and and take the fiscal hit. Uh, you know, it, it, I think Italy or Spain. It'll, you know, it'll it'll either be Italy or Spain, one of the two, and then and then it'll be it'll be real fun to see what happens from there. Um, I would say just that the, the 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 question now is is this that people are really somehow lost when they have to support a party or a movement or to to vote because they really do do not see um, any difference. No matter if you vote for the center-left or the center-right or, or the right or the left, basically nobody wants to change radically this situation we have now. And people people really start to not like that. I see it. I see it uh, in, the, in, the, um, in the web. I see... That's a good thing. People, Pe- people, know. people notice yeah. that their politicians are not representing right. them. That's a good thing because I think that's the first step to understanding that it's really not party one versus party two, it's the people versus mm-hmm. the elite. And that's a problem in most of the West where we don't have governments that are true democracies. And I don't necessarily believe in democracy as the best system, but if people understand that they do not have a democracy, I think they can make better decisions going forward. Per mari che 
Jesus.